Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here as always with David Scott. Pleasure to be back. Uh, now this week we've got a bit of a special focus on financial technology or fintech as it's known. On the show this week, uh, our guest uh, joining us to discuss the whole topic is Chris Robertson, who's a career investment manager and is now working on a range of fintech projects in Sydney. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, now look, Quickly on fintech, technology driving obviously significant changes in the financial sector in all sorts of ways. We'll all be familiar uh, with how our lives have been improved by not having to visit stuffy bank branches um, thanks to uh, apps and online services and we're not wrangling sort of pages and pages of bills. Uh, this is obviously helpful to, um, to billers and also the retail banks in all sorts of ways. Faster customer service, instant processing of payments, and doing away with the need to have branches. Um, so you get better outcomes for your customers, better margins, and at least that's the theory. But I guess retail banking is just a small part um, of the overall fintech story. It may be the most visible part, um, but automation of a lot of activity uh, across the financial sector is increasingly a reality. There's this huge wave of automation uh, and machine learning um, moving through global investment banking, uh, but also startups which are starting to design these solutions for existing issues which we know are out there in the markets. Uh, in recent years, as I said, we've seen the emergence of this machine learning and artificial intelligence, and this is what Chris is specializing in. A fascinating area, Chris. It is, it is. And, and with the area, I, I come from a background of traditional funds management and, and, and investment management. Um, but looking at this technology, you can see that, that it's going to change the way that, that people are going to invest and, and, and investment managers themselves are going to be managing the money. I think one of the things you mentioned to me earlier was that, you know, it literally is in its infancy uh, at the moment, the whole area. So, um, so we've got this whole uh, issue where, like, the machine learning is that over time that although those platforms will become more sophisticated uh, uh, and you know they'll go from being in short shorts to uh, to in the long pants um, uh, you know in the not too distant future exactly exactly the way I sort of see it at the moment and, and if you sort of apply human years to, to AI and machine learning and, and investment management they're a toddler they're one year one years old um, the, the way that we look at the technology is that it, it learns and, and adapts over time and to, and to learn it needs data sets. So as the data sets and the Internet of Things sort of get deeper and, and longer in time frame, we're going to see these sort of techniques and technologies evolve at a very rapid pace. Yeah, because I mean I suppose you think about it, uh, maybe there's traditional market signals which is prices for assets, right? But you roll up together when you start to get like where else could you look, for example, using the Internet of Things for data sets that are going to inform exactly, exactly. And I think the one one of the um, comments that I always get about using AI and machine learning and investment management is that it's very black box. 
And, and the way that we look at it is it's using the exact same techniques and, and um, investment management processes and theory that is used in traditional investment management that we've seen over the last sort of, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. Um, it's doing it on a far larger scale. Um, a classic example is um, typically when you talk to your fundamental investment managers, they may use 10 or 11, 12 investment criteria to think to select their stocks. Um, using sort of the technology that we're using, we can actually look at hundreds of thousands of investment criteria at any particular point in time. Um, but the actual underpinning investment theory is the same across the board. We just do it on a far larger scale. When you have that, th those platforms making those, um, looking at those stocks, looking at those, um, the, the various assets that you're monitoring, yeah. uh, at what point do you make the actual decisions to buy or sell? The machine itself. So what the machine does is it sucks in vast amounts of data. And, and it's interesting, actually, there's a British philosopher called Alan Watts that has said that there's infinite amount of information that leads to any one decision. And what we're trying to do is sort of get the amount of information that we use sort of closer to that point of infinity, which we'll never get to. Um, so the machine itself, what it does is it analyzes vast amounts of data. Um, it looks for trends and then locks onto those trends and then generates a trade list to tell you whether to buy or sell. Um, whether it's an algorithm that sort of trades on a, on a daily basis or, or other algorithms that we're sort of doing a lot of work around that's looking at investment portfolios, which is longer term. David, um, in the time that you've been in financial markets, you've seen sort of the rise of uh, this algorithmic uh, trading um, on, particularly uh, in Forex, and, but I guess probably in, uh, uh, on stock futures as well. Um, and, and increasingly on other, other asset classes. Um, what's the impact that you've seen over time on the price action on a day-to-day on -day basis? Oh, the price action. Look, people argue about the amount of liquidity that's added into the system from, uh, from algorithmic traders. Uh, some think that it doesn't supply the same amount of liquidity that was in the past, so sometimes you get uh, periods where you might see a lot of uh, skittish, uh, quite large price action where... Uh, where Things might gap uh, out of the blue. Uh, we saw an instance of that uh, late last year when, uh, of course, there was an article that came out about uh, how they're going to go and handle the Brexit EU. I think one of the French uh, ministers was talking about it and the, uh, the pound had uh, just fell like an absolute stone. Um, the, the price action, generally on a day-to-day -day basis, though, it's made a lot, things a lot more correlated. Uh, a lot more asset classes will go and move in lockstep with each other. And that's the one thing that I've seen definitely that's evolved over time where you'll see, uh, you know, uh, something will move in the US dollar and that will go and switch all the, uh, you know, everything against the US dollar, like the Aussie, the Kiwi, the Euro, uh, all of those currencies will start inc increasing. Uh, and you see that in a lot of other asset classes as well. Uh, US dollar increases, you're starting to see at the moment that that starts to benefit the US stock market. People float into the stock market. Um, not always, but there's definitely a lot more correlation across the markets where just you know, it's risk on risk off. You've probably heard the, uh, the the term in the past, and that's where it stems from, where everything seems to move in the same direction. So there'd be another say a suite of uh, of assets which are designated as risk on assets, and they find a bit correct. Yeah. Um, so and the classic is um, the old classic is is dollar yen and the Nikkei, but of course this is now transferring to a whole bunch of different uh, uh, types of markets and uh, and currencies too, as you mentioned. Yeah, there has been. That and, uh, and the euro, obviously, when you look at the US dollar index, they're dominated by the euro and the yen. But I found particularly in this time zone, I had a, a chap on, uh, on Twitter telling me I was incorrect yesterday, but uh, wouldn't be for the first time. But 
a lot of the time I see them, you'll see a movement in the dollar yen and that will go and transfer across all a variety of different asset classes where, as you said in the past, it tended to only kind of concentrate in the Nikkei and uh, the topic exchange there in, uh, in Japan. Mm. And Chris, when did all of this start to become a reality for you? Um, reality for me, to say the last few years, I've always had a, a quantitative bent. Um, and and the, the one point I want to make is is this: uh, there's two sort of there's a clear distinction between um, algorithms and machine learning that, that trade intraday, um, and 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 what what we just talked about, looking at the correlations between different asset classes, and then there's the machine learning that I'm I'm involved in, and what I'm doing with with the team is looking at using predictive analytics to lock onto trends. So it's a classic trend following type system except we're using sort of vast amounts of data and what we're wanting to do is lock onto trends in stocks and and try and predict with some sort of probability whether a stock's going to be up or down sometime in the future so we could hold a stock for you know a week a month a day you know a year down the track um and and and, and sort of once we've locked on to that then the machine will continually sort of test the hypothesis around that stock to see whether it holds down the track yeah, and that's the key difference because what you see with a lot of algorithmic trading platforms at the moment is that you've got very intelligent uh, people, often, often with a mathematics background, who will go and look at, they'll backtest what's happened in the past, but that's static in the way that the nature of that, uh, how that algo will then go and operate in those markets. And of course, things can change over time, which means that you have to continually go and evolve that. And I think that's where Chris is, uh, is, yeah. is talking. Yeah, and, and the, the technology that we're using, um, we talk about it as a, it's, a, it's an, it's an organism that sort of develops and adapts and learns. As the data sets um, grow, the market environment changes, it actually um, adapts to the, the new market environment. And we saw it during the GFC, that leading into the GFC, um, it adapted, it was, it was running on one particular regime, and then we saw markets get turned on their head. It learned from that and then adapted and then locked on to new trends and then took off from there. Um, and it's fascinating watching it over time and seeing how it, it changes and evolves. Um, and the thing about the, the algorithms and, and using AI and machine learning is the more data that you add to it, the, sort of, the more it learns, the more it adapts and evolves and grows. So it's kind of, it's, it's an evolutionary process and there's no human involvement. So what we do is we, we give it a framework within which it can learn and then we push a button and it goes and learns. So and help, comes out with its output. Help me think about this. So does it look across, um, I'm sure it does, but is there a component of it that looks across US stocks, for example? Yes. Right. So it will have been learning for the last few years, I'm sure, that there's this trend in uh, US stocks, which is when if they pull back a little bit, they are usually within a week or two higher again. Yes. Um, yep. This has been the overpowering trend um, for a, a very... A, um, variety of reasons, but um, just uh, U.S. stock indices just grinding higher and higher and higher, just a little bit every day, and now all of a sudden we're through twenty thousand on the Dow, um, you know, and stocks continue this week um, to hit all-time highs. Um, obviously, there's a lot of people have questions about how sustainable this is, right? Um, so, what is the machine learning uh, out of that pattern? What it's learning, and, and the thing about the machine is it picks up subtleties and changes in data and trends that the humans, human, human eye and the human mind just cannot comprehend. So it not only looks at the, the, um, the data in isolation and the stock in isolation, but it also looks at the interrelationship between data items. 
and this is on a vast scale. So I'm talking, um, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of, of sort of inter interrelationships. But it's continuously sucking the data into the system. So what it'll be doing, it'll be looking at things like um, price momentum and looking at the, the trend in price momentum and, and picking up those exact effects. Um, but also at stock level, it looks at the, the interrelationship of the stock's performance versus other stocks in the universe but also its performance over time. And also with, with the data, it, can look, it looks at underlying fundamentals, directed buying and selling, all those sort of sentiment type drivers as well, capital flows. So, and, and every time a new set of data comes into the system, it, it learns from it and, and, and changes the probabilities around the, the rules. So what it does is it builds up vast databases of, of rules and signals and assigns probabilities. So it's kind of like a memory and, and how your mind acts as a memory. And it's interesting to see it. Like we can, we can actually map it down to stock level and see where it changes. I call it, call it, it's a disturbance in the force. That you know that there's something happening, but as a human you just can't comprehend it. But for some reason the, 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 yeah, the machines picked it up. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that I understand about specifically a component of the, the, uh, the software that you're using uh, is used in heat-seeking missiles. Yeah, and it goes to the back to the fact that the technology isn't new. The, the technology is used across a vast range of industries, and we're using algorithms that are used, you know, in retail and in telecommunications and things like that. And and one of the um, one of the sort of the more interesting sort of the aspects of technology, or one of the algorithms we're using, is that is actually used in the the nose cones of heat-seeking missiles used to um, to dampen the noise in a signal. So heat-seeking missiles, if you, if you think, lock onto an aeroplane um, and there's a lot of heat coming out of the tail fins and it's shooting off sort of countermeasures and things like that. And, and, and the, uh, the algorithm can actually sort of dampen the noise and try and determine what's an aeroplane versus what's a countermeasure. And we're using pretty much exactly the same algorithm what we're doing as well. Locking, um, on, locking onto the trend. Locking onto the trend. <laughs> but I, I'm not going to name it because I don't want to give away too much of our, our IP. Um, but it's fascinating stuff. It, and, and, and basically, sort of the, my thinking around AI machine learning is taking what has worked outside of the investment management of fun, and financial services and, and, and um, financial markets and applying it into the financial markets, and, and it's right for that. Um, anywhere where you've got something that, that trends and can be, the trends can be identified and locked onto, then this technology will, will work. So the future of the financial industry then, um, was thinking about it, uh, I think in 2015, I pulled out uh, some numbers, but uh, these are just some 2015 numbers, uh, Goldman Sachs, right? Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO, likes to talk about how Goldman is a technology company. So these are 2015 numbers, so they may have moved around a bit, um, but um, they had 33,000 full-time employees at the bank. 9,000 of them were engineers and programmers. Right? And you compare that to uh, Facebook at the time had 9,200 workers uh, on, on December 31st, 2014. And, of course... Not all of those people, I mean, sure, Facebook is a tech company, but not all of those people work in tech. They're in sales, they're in marketing, they're in product strategy, they're in, you know, um, various management roles, all that kind of stuff. So effectively, it's a bit Goldman, you know, having more technologists than, than Facebook. And then you compare it to a company like Twitter, which everybody talks about as being, you know, a revolutionary technology company. And they had a few thousand employees in total. Um, and then when you look at LinkedIn, they had around that time something like 6,000. And half of those were not technologists. So, you know, for me, that raises a question about, well, what is the future shape of the 
financial industry because a lot of people out there who are either in current roles at the moment uh, and thinking about, okay, where do I go next? How do I shape the future of my career? Or people who are thinking about getting a career in finance. Um, how do you think about what the skills matrix is going to be in a successful financial um, uh, services company over the coming decade? I think it, I think it's um, data scientists and database managers, um, coders, programmers, developers. Um, it, with the with the sort of the growth of data and the Internet of Things and the ability to manipulate data and actually um, draw out identifiable signals, it's those skill sets that are going to get be in demand. Um, and we're going to see the the financial services industry compete with the, you know the Twitters and the Facebook of the work of the world, plus all these other firms that are wanting the data scientists to look at the data they've got. And, and you know, a classic example is um, retailers. Um, they, they're collecting vast amounts of data about the behaviour of their underlying consumers. Um, and I see financial services firms in the future are using more and more of this, this skill set. Um, you know, for example, the, the, the types of skill sets that, that we're talking to are astrophysicists and cryptographers and um, PhD in telecommunications and and things like that and and I, I've I've actually said to to some of the firms that I'm working with that there's only there's only room for sort of one um, funds management ego and that's mine and all we want to focus our attentions on sort of getting the best data scientists and best coders and best database administrators that Australia can produce and and use them in what we're doing um, and the demand's going to go up significantly. Um, have you found it difficult to find the right um, uh, depth of like, how do you find the talent pool? The talent pool in Australia is fantastic. Right. Um, the universities in Australia are turning out some fantastic talent. Um, the, the the quality of of their understanding and knowledge, their skill sets, um, you know, even the, the programmers and the developers, and, and coming from that side of things as well. I I think the the, the disappointing thing that I've found about um, Australia and actually being out there in the marketplace. Um, is how a lot of industries um, don't realise how deep the talent is, and, and seeing fintech firms in Australia having to go offshore to raise capital to 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 hire this talent when we've got this homegrown talent base that all it needs is capital from from um, from the markets and from from capital providers to fund them to tap into this talent base. I, I think Australia is is well positioned, um, and we're seeing great talent. You're listening to the Devil's Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm here with David Scott, and our guest this week is Chris Robertson, and we're talking all things uh, fintech. Now, um, maybe I, one, one of the things, other things that I want to look at is the regulatory side uh, of this. So, obviously, um, the federal government has now put in place what they call a regulatory sandbox, yes. where um, financial technology companies can deploy their um, their tools uh, and test them uh, against you know to make sure that they're compliant uh, on the different requirements that there are to you know involved in protecting consumers uh, protecting investors um, in in, uh, in the markets so um, this is obviously though moving very very quickly uh, so um, wh- what do you think are some of the issues there uh, in terms of making sure that all of this technology, that the regulation can keep up with the technology. Mm. It's an interesting question. Um, and and the, one of the things I would say about the, the new regulatory sandbox and also um, what the Australian government is putting in place for, for fintech, and they've got things like R&D grants and, and, and um, tax deductions for people that invest in fintech firms. Um, it's a great start. 
And, and what it's doing is it's actually leveling the playing field. So you can get a bunch of guys with a computer, a bunch of people, sorry, with a computer um, and, and a great idea and a whole bunch of data and they can actually build a business and, and, and test it. At, at, and, and the sandbox enables um, protection for the consumer but also enables the, these businesses to test their ideas at a particularly low cost. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing is, is that um, there's a lot more that can be done. Um, and and you're right. The, the regulations and, and financial market regulations probably need to sort of move with the times, and particularly as sort of this technology develops and 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 can trans- transact a lot faster. Because if you're transacting a lot faster with the technology, the scope for things to go wrong can happen a lot quicker as well. I think that at the same time, the technology too. Uh, I've been reading about one fascinating company called Digital Reasoning Systems. Right, it's an American company. Uh, and they do work for Goldman Sachs, um, and uh, what they do is that that company monitors communication um, at a market-wide and uh, organization-wide level, uh, and it's not just like looking for keywords, it's looking for patterns of interactions between people, and it understands the relationships that all of those different people have to the funds under management within the organization and the trades that are being executed. And the hope is, like particularly after, you know, we had the rate rigging scandals, um, which have been, you know, not just, you know, a, a few uh, banks in, in, the, in the UK, particularly Libor was the famous one, um, but there's been all sorts of other uh, rate rigging problems, including at um, some of the uh, major Australian banks, right? Mm. Um, but what digital reasoning uh, is, the promise of it is that they think that they can detect uh, when there are when there are unusual patterns of communication between uh, people in different financial institutions, and then how prices are getting set in the market. So you know, so the technology, you know, while it might challenge the regulation in some ways, regulators themselves might have some pretty significant tools for oh, exactly yeah. And the one, the one common uh, denominator when you're talking about the LIBOR scandals and BBSW here as well, the common denominator is that it's people physical human beings who are, who are doing these things. Uh, so perhaps you know, technology will eliminate some of those, uh, those human behaviours that could be uh, seen to be unwanted. Absolutely. So in this world, what happens to stock analysts? The guys who sit at desks looking over the numbers for a company, doing the market research, analysing the trends, looking at the way their balance sheet is constructed, all that kind of stuff. Um, Will there be a future for them? Well, it's interesting because um, the, the stock analysts sort of upgrades and downgrades it are used in many, many um, quant and AI processes as, as part of a signal generation because um, humans herd and, and herding, the herding behavior is something that, that's as spotted. I think there will be a role. Um, I do think there will be a diminished role and the role will actually change. Um, It'll be more sort of a bespoke role because the, the, one of the limitations with, with um, AI and machine learning and quantitative processes is if, if the data isn't available, it's unable to lock on to particular signals and trends and things like that. Um, and, and the role of the stock analyst will probably go back to more of the traditional role, which is um, working to raise capital for firms and making an assessment. So if you've got a firm that's IPOing, um, say on the Australian Stock Exchange, there's no data history there for them. So it's very difficult to sort of be able to assess what the correct value of that particular firm is. Um, and financial markets originally set up just to facilitate the transfer of capital from the investors 
that Warrington invest into companies and for companies that are actually wanting it and ensuring that the investors get a good return on their capital. So their role probably evolved more into that sort of traditional type role. And, and also when you think about it um, in terms of the data, I mean, one of the key things for any, like looking at an IPO is market sizing, right? Just this, take a really simple example, but market sizing, what is the size of the opportunity for this company that's going to list? Like, how big is it going to be really? How big is the customer base? Um, what are the trends uh, in uh, the mar- in the, in that consumer market? So, what direction uh, is that overall consumer market, customer market uh, taking? Does this uh, this company's product profile meet the needs of the emerging needs or the current needs um, of those people? And you can do that with a whole bunch of much bigger data sets than you know a guy sitting in a bank um, can access uh, I mean you know if you've got three weeks to look at a company there's only so much you can do exactly exactly and I think the relationship with the analyst the, the analysts and the companies are going to get a lot tighter as well to better understand their businesses they're very tight at the moment but they'll to better sort of understand their businesses and, and, and the environment that they're in and things like that what about on the, uh, the investor level what kind of questions do you get the big ones around the technology is very new. It's very black box. People say it's black box. Um, I sort of counter that, saying, "Well, not really. It's actually quite transparent. Like we, we while we don't give away our IP, as in the algorithms that we're using, the the underlying um, investment theory um, is the same as whether you're doing a sort of a fundamental quant or, or what we're doing. Um, the portfolio construction parameters, like risk sizing and position sizing, everything like that, very very transparent. We'll, we'll happily happily give those out." Um, so get a lot of questions around that. Also, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, where does something like this sit within a portfolio? And a lot of the questions I get from sort of analysts is, is we, do we throw out sort of our traditional investment managers and put in something, just put it in 100% AI? Um, I'd argue no. Um, each, each sort of component of a portfolio um, has a different role to play. Um, and, and the way I see this is sort of just adding to that, that sort of um, portfolio construction piece and adding additional value. Yeah, um, because one of the things, yeah, um, I think from uh, Plexus, one of the companies that um, I think, you know, your key machine learning uh, piece of work um, is that, you know, it very uh, clearly sa- says that, you know, um, they're trying to use uh, machine learning to seek alpha. Um, and um, so is that where it kind of sits in a portfolio? Like this is... You know, this allocation is trying to chase some uh, some alpha, so maybe a little bit more high, high risk in terms of the, the risk spectrum. No, we we actually the way the way we the way the technology works is because um, because it adapts so quickly to changing market environments. Um, when you see so in, in our testing, when we see like a GFC type event um, where there's a, a very large, quick, vicious. Um, regime change within the market, it adapts very quickly. Um, whereas when, when you're sort of your traditional, um, traditional investment management, even in quant, it takes a little bit longer to lock onto those trends. So, so what the AI machine learning does is it, does, it dampens the drawdowns, so it reduces the drawdowns when there's a particularly sharp, harsh market event because it can adapt so quickly. So with, with what we're doing, we run it on a weekly basis. Um, and whenever it runs, the, the, the machine locks onto a new... New trends, new regimes. So if there's a very sharp trend change, 
Um, and we saw this during the GFC that, that when the market started falling and, and things like momentum stopped working, um, analysts' um, earnings estimates lagged what was out in the market. So the market was pricing in a lot faster companies that were in trouble than what the analysts' earnings were representing. Um, AI adapted really, really quickly because it uses a whole bunch of different sorts of data sets and looks at the interrelationships and things like that. Um, so it, it'd, be, it'd be used in the portfolios more as a sort of a dampener in right. that environment, but at the same time generating alpha on the upside. Um, but you can't have your cake and eat it too, so if the markets are, are roaring, it'll probably, probably lag the market. Um, but it, it sort of narrows that return profile, so it lessens the volatility. Really interesting. And you touched on some of this earlier before, um, but it's different. How, how, can you explain how it differentiates from traditional quant models? Well, traditional quant models, it, the way, um, the best way to describe it is um, when, you, when you're in investment management with your fundamental quant, um, you have an investment hypothesis and, and you look at um, a framework that sort of matches that. So, for example, in quant, um, they may say that sort of three-month momentum or price momentum um, is a particularly strong signal. What they, what they typically do is they build um, the portfolios that are fairly static. So they choose, um, say, a bunch of signals, say 10, 12 signals that work, and, and they'll work most of the time. Sometimes they won't work, but most of the time they will work, so therefore um, over time they'll generate alpha. Um, what we're doing is we're doing exactly that, but we're changing our model every time we run. So what it's doing is it's examining hundreds of thousands of different quant signals and picking the ones that are working at the best moment in time and using those going forward. And then, you know, in a month's time, that may change, yeah. and then it adds new signals. Um, so that that's, would be the key differentiator between quant. That quant's sort of more static in the models they use, whereas we are totally adaptive and change and evolve. And what about your risk management? Because uh, I'm sure this would be one of the questions that any investor would have, like, how is your risk management? Well, the risk management's around position sizing. Um, the thing with, with any sort of investment process is, um, if you get a, a signal or, or um, you think a stock's going to go up or down, um, you don't want to bet everything on it. Or, or, so what we do is we, we scale in to our positions. So we take small small positions, scaling in, and then we just scale out. Um, we also have caps on, on the position size as well. So it's very the portfolio construction process with your fundamental quant or AI is the same. Um, in that, you, you know, part of the decision-making process. We, we, the only difference is we do it fully automatically. You scale into positions and you scale out. Um, How many stocks is it? At the moment, we're running it over the ASX. So we're looking at the ASX 500. Um, and any one time, we could sort of have about 180 to 200 stocks in the portfolio. So the, the way that we, we um, the way that we're, the machine learning is applied is you take a, a lot of very small bits that, or positions that, um, in isolation, generate small amounts of alpha, but combined give you the result that you want. Um, and it goes down to the fundamental law of active management, where if you've got a, a, a strong signal, you want to spread it over a large number of positions, so you're sort of spreading your risk. Um, so, and of course, you know, traditionally, to manage a portfolio of that size, you would need a lot of people. Yes, yeah. So, um, but what you're working with, how many traders have you got on the team kind of thing? Um, we're only small because we're only just starting out. So we've probably got about four or five people. Um, the thing is, is the machine itself um, generates a trade list. So in the old days, I'd be a portfolio manager. 
Um, these days I call myself a portfolio administrator because my role is to take the trade list and make sure it's represented in the portfolio. Um, the One of the, the questions we get um, is if the model generates a trade list and and um, the market absolutely collapses or there's a massive event and, and financial markets go haywire. And I sort of say, I've got a big red button. I don't, don't override what the machine's generating, but I'll say, hang on a sec, things have gone haywire, let's stop and let's run the model again in three or four days' time to see whether it's picked up any new signals. Um, Excellent. Fascinating. Uh, it's a completely fascinating area. I um, really appreciate you uh, sharing your insights on it. We're going to um, talk quickly about uh, some of the general um, economic news uh, this week. Uh, Dave, um, another week of ho-hum Australian uh, economic data. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm thoroughly enthralled with the conversation. So, yeah, on to the, uh, the boring stuff now to go and end the show. Um, there always been EFA economists. Oh, well, you know. Oh. Who knows, AI, AI economists, that could be, uh, could be the next thing. Uh, obviously, uh, we had wage price index come out, uh, very disappointing again, uh, particularly uh, the private sector, which is the, uh, by far the largest employer in the country. Uh, Yet another record low for the private sector. Yeah, 0.4 for a quarter and 1.8 year on year is, uh, is pretty, uh, pretty pathetic uh, in the scheme of things, just ahead of inflation. Um, there's hope that there's going to be a pickup in wage inflation coming. Uh, people are talking about uh, stronger economic conditions, better business confidence, etc. feeding into that, a rebound in uh, global inflationary pressures. But uh, looking at the uh, levels of underemployment and underutilization in our labor market, it's going to be a very long, drawn-out process. And we're already seeing that with the United States. Uh, they're probably uh, a few years ahead of us in terms of their recovery. And uh, even with uh, unemployment to where it is there, so low, uh, the economy's doing fairly well. They've very, very uh, rarely seen any uh, any major pickup in uh, in wage growth. So, um, yeah, probably nothing to go and write home for the uh, for the years ahead, unfortunately. And we also had capex, and uh, Chris, you and I, you know, conversation about this earlier. But you know, mining capex down again. Well, you know, all the capex. <laughs> this was going always going to be a big cliff that it was going to fall off because so much capital has actually already been put into the system. There's all these giant mines, robotic trains, and um, you know, uh, robots that go down and explore around different corners of the mine. All that kind of stuff. It's all been hugely expensive projects that have been set up. And there's a huge amount of capacity. We're seeing this now come through in the volumes that are going out of Port Hedland, um, where the iron ore is, uh, is shipped from. Um, so, you know, continual record volumes over the last few months. But, you know, the amount of capital that was required to create that capacity uh, was huge. And, you know, we're down again mining CapEx. Um, and this is just kind of the nature of, the, of the, the capital investment cycle in mining, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the companies themselves, they'll, they'll sort of hold off. Um, they'll, they'll, they'll spend the minimum on OPEX, which is just the operational CapEx to keep, keep everything going. Um, but eventually they're going to have to spend... Um, especially as their mine lives um, sort of come towards their end. They're going to have to do new exploration, look at new, developing new mines and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I just think they're just being cautious now, which kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, the, the, it's a little bit unclear direction of, um, you know, it looks like we're in this current uh, price action commodity markets looks very cyclical. Uh, was sort of the, the, the fire was lit by, you know, another big round of stimulus in China um, uh, last year. And that's just kept pumping um, uh, iron ore and, uh, and coal prices, you know, for, in terms of uh, Australian exports. Um, so if this looks cyclical, prices come down, some mines start to become uh, not necessarily hugely profitable uh, again. 
Uh, I mean, certainly when your extraction cost is something like you know fifteen bucks after all the investment, uh, fifteen bucks a ton after all the investment that you put through um, in the in the mid two thousands, and you're now getting prices of ninety dollars, uh, spot prices at ninety bucks. Um, uh, so you know that's you know that they are the good times, and we've seen that in Fortescue's results and and everything this week. But if that comes off again, then the, the, your margins start to come down. Um, so I suppose they'd be looking for something that's a bit more um, sustainable, you know, kind of clearer picture on commodities before we get this. You know, if there is going to be another upsurge in uh, in, in mining capex, then. Um, that's what we're sort of be looking. You'd be looking out for in terms of market conditions. Yeah, and it could be in different areas as well. Um, great example is um, cobalt at the moment seems to be the hottest commodity around. It just seems to be rallying and rallying, and it's a key component in batteries. Um, yeah. So I think there's a bit of spending going on there. Um, not because there of... was the lithium, the whole lithium craziness last year. Yeah. Um, uh, but but cobalt's a more fundamental component of yeah it's it's either I got to go back to my um, my high school chemistry but I think it's a cathode within the within the batteries is a cobalt whereas the lithium is sort of the best way I've had it described to me is sort of the the sprinkle on the top so you use a little bit of um, lithium and a lot of cobalt um, to build your batteries and, and as we know the sort of demand for batteries is just exploding fascinating uh, Dave other sectors in the capex uh, looking kind of okay. Yes, so there are signs that services are it's defined as other industries in the uh, capex survey, uh, but to predominantly services, there's signs that it's picking up. The only problem is that it's just still not enough to go and uh, offset the decline in mining capex. The, the first estimate from mining capex spend in 2017-18, I think, was down another 20 percent. So huge amounts, uh, and quite simply, there's just not enough spending going on in the other industries to go and uh, and push that up and offset it at this point in time. But uh, certainly the services industry is, is looking like it's starting to go and spend a bit more money now, which is a good sign. Uh, and the one thing I caution about the CapEx result uh, on the report in particular is that it only captures around about 60% of total business spending. Healthcare and education are two massive industries in this country. They're not included in this, uh, in this report. And also the government spending uh, is not included as well. Uh, the second thing is that been so far out. I know. Do you guys know what you're going to be doing in, uh, in uh, midway through next year? No, not at all. So that's the same thing with a lot of businesses. So they're not sure what the operating environment's going to be at that time. So by very nature of that, they're very cautious in how much they're planning to invest. So yes, the uh, the first estimate was quite low this year, and that was for next year, and that was driven by mining. But there's still a lot of time to go and sort of digest and see how the, uh, the global economy and the domestic economy unfolds. That's right, and that, which is what gives us the, 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 the CapEx report, uh, the ability to, for its underlying numbers, not just the headline figure, but those underlying estimates of forward investment uh, to move around quite a bit. Yes, exactly. Quarter to quarter. Uh, so we have other GDP partials coming up. Yes, net exports will be a, a key one. So uh, net exports detracted last quarter and was part of the reason why we saw uh, a sharp decline. We're seeing iron ore, you mentioned uh, Port Hedland, and, uh, I think by the end of this year they'll probably be exporting about 500 million tonnes, most of that going to China. I know uh, in the current quarter we're seeing good volumes for iron ore and for coking coal. Uh, there's talk that there may be a, it will slightly add to GDP, but that'll be a crucial cog. We already know that uh, the consumption is going to be fairly good, even just knowing the, uh, the retail sales figure that we saw a 0.9 increase in turnover for the quarter. So you put that in, it's going to be very hard for another negative print. It would take 
pretty much every single uh, you know GDP partial over the next uh, next few days to come out weak to go and put that in the, into a negative territory perspective. So uh, certainly another uh, interesting week uh, coming up. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, I've been here with David Scott. Uh, David, uh, Global Markets and Economics Reporter for Business Insider, thanks again for coming on the show. Not a problem. Always a pleasure to be here, Paul. And our guest this week, Chris Robertson, uh, who's uh, at Plexus, um, and he's been here to talk us through um, some of the developments in uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence in the financial industry. Fascinating chat, Chris. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, you can find us on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review. We're on the web at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. And you can find us all individually on Twitter too. Uh, the show's been produced by Rick Salter. I'm Paul Colgan and we'll talk to you soon. podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.